Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Having trouble getting things done at work? You're not alone. Maybe in order to unlock amazing outcomes, it's time to stop looking up and down for answers and instead start looking across. What do we mean by that? The companies with the fastest speed to market tend to be the ones that look across the organization rather than up and down the hierarchy. Stay tuned to hear how Atlassian software like Confluence, Jira, and Loom can help maximize effective teamwork in your organization. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Support for Pivot comes from Pendo. Pendo improves the apps your customers and employees rely on. Whether you're building applications for customers or managing applications for employees, Pendo can help deliver better experiences for your users so they can get more value from your software. Visit pendo.io slash pivot to learn more about how your team can use Pendo to start building better digital experiences. There you can also check out Pendo's lineup of free certification courses, 12 hours of in-depth training for your product management teams on topics from AI to product analytics to product-led growth. That's pendo.io slash pivot to learn more. Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. Scott Galloway is at a soccer game faking a Scottish accent. So today I'm joined by journalist and author William D. Cohen. Bill, thanks for skipping Burning Man to join us. Well, I could still make the back end of it, Kara, if we get done with this in time. But thank you for having me. Please don't. You know, I've never been to Burning Man, even though all the people I cover go there. I just can't do it. You know why? I'll tell you why. They're going to give me drugs and and take pictures. That's my feeling on that. What do you think? Uh, My brother has gone uh, many times. It's not for me. I don't need to be in the middle of a Nevada desert or wherever the hell it is. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so you've been really busy. There's so much to talk about for us, but let's get an update on you. You've written about like a million different things over the past uh, couple of weeks. It's been not an unbusy summer, essentially, which is usually the quiet time for Wall Street and finance. Well, you know, uh, being a founding partner of Puck uh, requires me to cough up uh, two two articles or uh, uh, opinion pieces or punditry Uh uh, pieces a a week. So that's Uh plenty busy. And, um, you know, the big news is my new book coming out November 15th, three years Mm -hmm. in the making, called Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of an American Icon. And that really uh, was extremely uh, challenging uh, reporting and writing, but it is now done. So it's about GE. It's about GE. Why did you pick that? Obviously, it, it had undergone, you know, it's a rethinking of Jack Welch, essentially, probably. Well, that's, that's part of it. I don't think that's you know necessarily what I dwell on uh it's really the thinking of whoa there's like a dead body on the floor how did it get here I mean this GE was once you know Apple Microsoft Google kind of rolled up in one and so if the most valuable company in the world the most highly respected company in the world a technology leader with quote-unquote the best management in the world can pretty much dissolve and lose 80 plus percent of its market value in a short period of time, you know, why can't that happen to Apple? Why can't that happen to Microsoft or Google? And so I think it's a cautionary tale. Uh, You know, how do you become, go from being the most valuable company in the world, the most respected company in the world, a management uh, machine to something that people really don't talk about much anymore. So if, I, I don't want you, we're going to talk about the book when it comes out, but is there one thing that you point to that in your conclusions when you look at this company or companies like it? Yeah, I think, Kara, the, the most important thing I learned through this process, which I sort of knew anyway, but uh, it's just reinforced, was that the CEO really matters. And the choice of who a CEO successor is, is really important. And if you get it right, it can make all the difference. And if you get it wrong, uh, you know, bad things can happen. Right. So it's the, it comes down to a single person again, once again, this idea. You know, with the right team around him and a, and a board of directors doing their jobs. And, and here's a case where the board of directors kind of just abdicated after deciding, oh, my God, I'm on the board of GE. How fabulous is this? 
I don't have to do my job anymore. Mm-hmm. And so this is what happened, and this is how things go. It, it can go rather quickly now in today's market. Very quickly. And especially, you know, when half the company was a financial services company, uh, you go through the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008, uh, you know, bad things can happen too. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to to to, to reading it. Um, I, I you've uh, I heard you've seen more of Scott this month than the Pivot team has. Were you visiting with him? Uh, well, he came to uh, this island, Nantucket, uh-huh. where we've been since June, and uh, it was. Uh, he's come here regularly, and so I saw him here last year, and we reprised it this year uh, with Beata, his wife, who's absolutely charming, perhaps the better half. She the, is really. Um, and people should know that about her because she really is delightful. And, you know, he's Scott, so sometimes yeah. he is, sometimes he isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just enjoyed their company immensely and met their two sons, who were great, and they cooked a wonderful meal. It was great oh, all around. Oh, good. Scott's yeah. always often a good time. Um so, so there's a lot going on. As I said, I know you have to write columns, but you've had a lot of material. So we'll talk about the Fed's dire warning and what comes next. We'll also get into brewing legal challenges against Apple. And we'll speak to Kevin Delaney about the present and future of work, which is an area you write about quite a bit too. But first, uh, True Social. Let me start with an easy one. A layup for you is not doing well this week. Its trademark application was denied for being too similar to another social app. Also, the platform's SPAC merger has been indefinitely postponed over concerns about Trump's reputation. And if that weren't enough, the business is also accused of not paying a vendor. That's not a surprise. At $1.6 million in uh, contractually obligated payments. This is RightForge, which is one of their uh, very critical tech vendors. Um, so what do we what do we think about this, Bill? Is this come as any surprise to you in any way? Uh, I think it's delightful news, Kara. Uh, <laughs> I mean, let, let's be honest here. If you choose Devin Nunes as your mm-hmm. CEO, yes, what yes. were you possibly thinking to begin with? I mean, what mm-hmm. good could possibly ever come out of choosing a strange congressperson? as a CEO right. of a media company. So that right, right. was uh, a quite a, a startling choice to begin with. Uh, mm-hmm. Donald Trump's stiffing his vendors. Uh, gee, that's hardly news. He's been doing that for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's no surprise. Why they keep doing business with him is the big surprise. Um, and whether, uh, you know, the SPAC, DWAC, uh, you know, ends up completing the merger with Truth Social probably isn't that relevant. I mean, in other words, if that SPAC deal falls apart, it would be one of many SPAC deals that have fallen apart uh, this year. And Truth Social could still exist without merging. It wouldn't be the payday that the Donald is, of course, hoping for. He wants to get his hands on that billion dollars or whatever it was. Could he have gotten some of it? Could some of it have been funneled to him in some fashion? Uh, uh, Probably... uh, we don't know exactly the ownership of Truth Social. Probably it could. You know, he's expert, Kara, at getting money funneled to him, uh, whether it's uh, appropriate or not. He's very, very good at that. Uh, I'm sure he's got it, would love to get his hands on that money, yes. Mm-hmm. So do you ever see it going public at all whatsoever? You know, if the SPAC deal falls apart, which I would say is like 50-50 because they've kind of extended the timeline for the deal, but they have only have two years to get it done, and now they're into their second year. Uh, I mean, some other SPAC could come along, you know, with the Donald. I mean, really, the question is, is just how relevant Donald Trump is going to end up being in the next two years. Um, and if he, you know, somehow isn't indicted and somehow uh, is shown to have succeeded in the uh, midterm elections by anointing his candidates, if some of them actually win as opposed to lose, which seems like they're go- what's going to happen. And it's, and if it's somehow he seems like he's going to be the Republican nominee in 2024, then suddenly he becomes very relevant again. And I'm sure there's plenty of money out there willing to you know connect with Truth Social to make it viable. So just give money, like even if it's a losing product, we're going to buy into this dog. Or, you know, or one of his, you know, billionaire uh, friends, of which there are many, who decide that, you know, he's going to be a viable candidate and has, uh, you know, at that point, it's 50-50, right, Uh, whether he can win. And, uh, you know, who knows what that whole election would be like if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee. And so, uh, you know, he, he doesn't care to put his 
uh, businesses in a blind trust. So I'm sure he would try to monetize Truth Social if the SPAC thing falls apart through some other mechanism. Yeah, he's using it quite actively, even though other people aren't. It's not a particularly popular social media site. All of those social media sites have sort of gone sideways. And he doesn't really have the following. He's got like, what, 4 million followers as opposed to the 88 that he had, 88 million. I mean, that's a a material decrease in uh, Donald Trump's popularity in social media. Yes. Um, Yes, indeed. Indeed. So so one of the things that we had talked about was, you know, on the other side is this idea of of these social media sites and what they do. Now, this week, Euphoria star Sydney Sweeney, I don't know if you watch Euphoria, but she's a hot mess like everybody else in the show, is asking people to stop making assumptions. She uh, she posted pictures of her family, which had a, was called a surprise hoedown for her mom for her birthday, her 60th birthday. And the, the internet, some people focused on a man wearing a Blue Lives Matter shirt and guests wearing red hats that read make 60 great again. Um, I thought it was quite unfair. I, I have a hat, it's not red, that says make America gay again. But I'd love your sort of thoughts on where social media is going, especially things like Twitter, because the, on, the, on the other hand, the White House is using his Twitter account and John Fetterman in really effective ways, uh, facing criticism in the wake of student loan forgiveness. For example, the account started, quote, tweeting Republican criticisms with the amount of PPP loans they had received. Uh, for example, Representative Mike Kelly tweeted, asking plumbers and carpenters to pay off the loans of Wall Street advisors and lawyers isn't just unfair, it's also bad policy. And the White House account responded via a quote tweet, Congress and Mike Kelly had $987,237 in PPP loans forgiven. So talk a little bit about the evolving nature of Twitter. Is it just a lot of noise from your perspective? It is a, it is a lot of noise, as we both know. Uh, it's also can be often indispensable as, you know, for, for, for journalists and people who want to know what's going on. So, you know, the potential has always been there with Twitter. It's not a particularly good business. Uh, it struggles to make a billion dollars in EBITDA a year. Uh, you know, as far as the White House tweeting uh, is concerned, personally, you know, uh, I, I also wonder why we all can't just get along, okay? But since we can't, uh, I'm very glad that the White House is fighting back. I'm, you know, for years, the you know, the, the White House or even the Democratic Party has just been sort of mamby-pamby about letting people like Mitch McConnell roll all over them. I mean, to me, the Rubicon was crossed when Mitch McConnell uh, prevented Merrick Garland from being the Supreme Court nominee. So ever since then, you know, we should be, that we, we, the Democratic Party, we should be fighting back uh, against this. And so this is a perfect example of a way to fight back, and I'm all for it. Uh, I think, you know, this is, I was hearing, uh, listening to Dan Pfeiffer on the John Heilman podcast uh, the other day, only because, you know, there wasn't a new pivot to listen to. And, uh, uh, you know, Dan Pfeiffer said, yes, this is exactly what they should be doing. They should be fighting back and aggressively. And I agree. I mean, the hypocrisy of not wanting people to get some relief from student loans while you get a million dollars relief on your PPP loan. Why did you even get a PPP loan to begin with? So mm-hmm. I'm all for that. And, you know, S- Sydney Sweeney, she was great in White Lotus. I'm not a euphoria watcher, but I mean, can we just all get along? I don't understand why people want to post on Instagram. I don't understand that. I don't do it. I don't understand why people want to give their data away for free. I've never understood the uh, Facebook uh, business plan. Uh, You know, somebody's gonna come along and figure out a way to share either through stock warrants or uh, financial rewards to people for their data. And that will supplant Facebook, uh, I think relatively quickly if somebody can figure out how to do that. But I mean, if you're gonna post this stuff on social media, of your family having a birthday party, you know, can't we just leave them alone? Mm-hmm, that's true. I, f- I agree with you. One, I'm curious one thing. I've noticed of all the people, because Holly was very involved with all these social media networks, others, TikTok, whatever it is. Wall Street isn't very much so. It, they, they tend to stay out of it. Why is that? Uh, danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Uh, you know, nothing good can, can come out of uh, a person who works on Wall Street uh, having a, a large social media presence. Uh, 
you're going to screw up and you're going to lose your job and they're going to have going to be able to easily uh, explain to you why you've lost your job. There's just nothing good that can come of it. And so don't even bother. I was trying to think of a social media star in finance when, when you were coming and I was like, there isn't really one. There isn't someone who posts very much at all of all of them. I mean, there are Wall Street uh you know, observation uh, yep. websites. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But, but I mean, I mean, I would say maybe uh, David Solomon at Goldman Sachs in his yeah. DJ Desol persona is about as close <laughs> as you get, and that's, you know, that's controversial, frankly, and debatable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. You know, he loves it, and so he does it, and he's the CEO, yeah. so he can do it. So there you go. That's not going to stop, is it? There's nothing. Unfortunately, we can do that's not going to stop. No, oh, that's a uh, sad situation. Yeah. Anyway, let's get to our uh, first big story. U.S. households could be in for more pain. That's the word from Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, who gave a speech on Friday signaling that more rate hikes could be coming. Stocks dove on the news. The Dow shed more than a thousand points, and the tech sector took the day's biggest hit. Um, there was some good news Friday. So why uh, is the reaction so severe? You've been writing about this for a while. And this economy, the good news, the inflation may be cooling. Indexes that track inflation either came in below expectations or even fell slightly. Again, tech took a big hit. Um, talk a little bit about where we are, because you you were the first person I read, and I don't read as widely as I should, though, but you, signaling the party's over kind of thing. About two years ago, you started writing about this. So talk about what's happening now and, and what you see happening next. So, uh, yeah, the the party is over is a very good phrase because it was a uh, uh, cheap money, uh, low interest rate party. In fact, the Fed's policy was ZERP, zero interest rate policy. Uh, the Fed uh, manipulated interest rates down since 2009, so for basically 12 or 13 years. And so people who make money from money had a bonanza. Absolute party. I mean, and you saw that. You know, our friend Elon Musk's uh, net worth went from thirty-five billion to two hundred and fifty billions during the last couple of years, um, in large part because of the uh, free money party. And now, uh, uh, you know, obviously the Fed has changed course. Uh, is now back to trying to fight inflation. Probably a year or so too late, as our friend Larry Summers. They listened to Larry, um, who wanted to be Fed chairman, uh, but was denied. Uh, maybe we'd be in a different position now, but Jay Powell uh, has finally decided to turn this ocean liner around. Takes a long time. Uh, people thought he was serious in the uh, winter and spring. Suddenly, by July and August, because inflation came in slightly lower than it had been trending, People thought, oh, maybe the party's back on again. Let's bring the punch right. bowl back out. Mm -hmm. Let's pour yeah. some more tequila in. What, what is your punch bowl? It's full of a lot of stuff. Was it easing? Uh, what was it? One thing that was particularly oh, tasty in that bowl. <laughs> Quantitative easing was the tastiest brand of tequila <laughs> that the Fed mm -hmm. had been pouring into that punch bowl for literally 12 years, which is just Fed speak for... Uh, manipulating interest rates to absurdly low levels, which means that uh, investors aren't going to get rewarded for the risks that they're taking. And, you know, one of my favorite measures, and I don't want to get too technical here, is, you know, what's the average yield on a junk bond, which is a bond that is issued by companies with the worst credit. And last, about a year ago, it got as low as below 4% yield. So no risk, no risk. Well, yeah. no reward for a no lot of risk. No reward for risk. Yes, that's what yes. it means. And, uh, you know, when you don't get rewarded for the risks that you're taking, then bad things happen. And uh, uh, a month or so ago, the rate was up to 9%. So that means that anybody who bought when the rate was under 4% has just gotten singed. Uh, on their uh, on their principal amount, uh, you know, it can change over time. Uh, uh, but so the Fed on Friday, uh, you know, uh, at his Jackson Hole speech, uh, Jay Powell, you know, reiterated that he's very serious about fighting inflation and he's going to continue raising interest rates. And so all those people in the market who were hoping that maybe Jay Powell was just kidding, as he had been kidding once before, 
He got taken to the woodshed by Trump in February of 2019 at a dinner where I'd love to know what really happened, but don't know, uh, and then decided to back off his raising interest rates uh, agenda. Uh, now has indicated that he's serious and, you know, he's been renominated, you know, he's been reappointed to the post for another uh, chunk of time. He's not going to get a third time right. by Biden. And he's and he doesn't have the same Biden. I mean, all presidents yell at the Fed, the head of the Fed often. Of course, um, of course. But, but in this case, this dinner where he should have put the screws to everything at the time. Right. The dinner was with Trump in February of 2019. He had been raising interest rates at in 2018, and basically, I'm sure Trump told him to stop, or else he wouldn't get renominated, or whatever it was. You know, Trump threatened him with, and he changed. He reversed course. You know, the party kept going. The tequila, you know, quantitative easing tequila got poured in again. Then we had the uh, pandemic, where more tequila got, uh, and no punch. There's no punch in this punch bowl, by the way. It's <laughs> literally pure tequila. Uh, but now it looks like you know the punch bowl is being taken away, which of course is. The famous phrase that another Fed chairman, William McChesney Martin, used uh, to say is the Fed's role, is the principal role of the Fed is to, quote, unquote, take the punch bowl away as the party's getting started, okay, as the party's getting started. This party's been raging for 12 years. So tech took a big hit, as I said. Shouldn't it be more resilient? The business is good. Um Semiconductor manufacturers are suddenly looking at a glut of chips when there were not enough before. Intel cut $4 billion of its capital spending plans on the same day that Congress passed the CHIPS Act, by the way, um, which is a lot more about national security than other things. But wh why does tech particularly get hit? So tech gets hit because uh, it's probably had the largest uh, increase in value during this period of time. Uh, you know, Apple's market value is two and a half trillion dollars. I mean, that's the GDP of more than the GDP of many countries. Uh, so, you know, what goes up fast also comes down fast uh, when uh, it looks like economic, you know, there's, uh, if I may use this uh, phrase, Kara, uh, there's been a pivot uh, at the Fed level. In other words, the spigot is being turned off. The party is over. And that's going to mean, as, as Jay Powell said, pain for American families, some pain. Interest rates are going to be higher. It's going to be harder to borrow money. It's going to be harder to get a mortgage. It's going to be harder to get a car loan. Uh, the economy, you know, they want the economy to slow. That's the whole cool, point of chill. this. Right. They want the economy mm -hmm. to chill. Now, the Google business plan, the Apple business plan, the Microsoft business plan, they seem relentless. They just seem, they are so finely tuned at this point. The businesses probably will continue to do well, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they need to trade at, you know, 100 PE or whatever their PEs are. I mean, Tesla's PE uh, has been, you know, quasi-infinite, and so it's going to come down rapidly if people... Uh, don't have the money to buy Tesla cars. Uh, or cheap money, or, or incredibly right, cheap money. Or don't have cheap yeah. money. So inflation, inflation, inflation is what Powell is focused in on. Yes, yes, he's finally seen the light. You know, Larry Summers was telling him a year and a half earlier, inflation, inflation, inflation is bad. And he, you know, termed it as transitory. Well, guess what, Jay? It's not transitory, it's real, it's here, it's going at like nine, percent, eight and a half percent annually, the highest level of inflation in 40 years. And, you know, if Jay Powell is going to wear his Paul Volcker hat, then we've got a lot more interest rate increases to come. And, you know, that will absolutely, if he follows through, will put the brakes on the economy, which is, you know, what they need to do to get inflation back to 2%. But there's, you know, as we think back, I'm old enough to know what happened in the late 70s and early 80s when Paul Volcker raised interest rates to whatever, 18%. I mean, th those are levels that basically we can't even conceive of at the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then what happens from your perspective? Uh, big time uh, recession, big time uh you know, sl slow down in the stock market, reversal in the stock market, reversal in corporate earnings. Uh, but that will get inflation tamed, or we think, mm -hmm. we hope and, it will. Right. And then what happens? Then we slowly come out of it. And uh, people who bought uh, treasury securities that yielded 15% made a fortune. So ironically, uh, when uh, interest rates start getting increased, 
it's sort of the opposite of what I was talking about with taking risks where you're not rewarded. Uh, if interest rates get anywhere near to where they were in the Volcker era, then treasury securities, which are supposedly the safest uh, that we have and that are out there, if they're yielding 15%, as they, uh, some of them did during the Volcker era, I mean, that is an unbelievably great investment. And people should dive into uh, treasury securities at that point and driving uh, their price up and their yields down. And then the cycle you know, then it becomes, we'll begin again. Yeah, the virtuous cycle. Yeah, and of course, of course, it all has, you know, political implications, which we'll see what happens. But right now, people are sort of amazed the recession hadn't really happened yet. Yeah, I mean, people... It doesn't seem... Yeah, they sit there and talk about... Economists sit around and talk about, well, has the recession happened? Have we had two negative quarters of GDP growth? I mean, what Americans don't sit around saying... Uh, they say, how much do I have to pay at the pump? How much does that hamburger cost? Uh, can I pay my rent? Can I pay my mortgage? That's and what that's where pe- people are already in that mode, although it's been easing off a little bit. I, I was in a, a gas station, at least four people were like, oh, the price of gas is coming down. And then they were all jolly. And I was it was it was down. It was down at least a dollar, which was interesting. It's just people's moods shift a lot around the price of gas, which is really kind of amazing. Yeah, because... Uh, That's what it matters most. That, well, and that and paying their mortgage and paying right. their rent and putting food on the table. And those are the important things, not whether, quote unquote, we're in a recession or not. Yep, exactly. All right. Uh, we're going to take on a quick break. And we come back, the law may be coming for Apple. We'll talk a little bit about Elon Musk's friends who are getting dragged into some depositions. And uh, we'll speak with a friend of Pivot, Kevin Delaney, about never going back to the office. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from Atlassian. The universal truth with our customers is they're all struggling to get stuff done. Our goal is how do we help them unleash the potential of their people, their teams, and their technology to actually get the right things done at the right time with the right people the right way. And when we do that, magical things truly happen. Don Price is Atlassian's work futurist. It's his job to help Atlassian customers imagine more effective ways to work. It's completely natural to focus on what you can control in your team. The problem is if if that's all you do, you get pretty myopic. The best teams I'm working with, they really work on who are the people upstream and downstream that we need to work with. How do we get flow across the organization? How do we get value into the hands of our customers quickly? And sometimes achieving flow means that instead of asking who do I work for, it's asking who do I work with? When you get team connection right, everyone benefits, the employee, the employer, and the customer, right? To get stuff done, the best organizations and teams right now are focusing on modern work. They're dreaming about the future, but they're dreaming about it by planting the seed to get the right things done right now. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom enable teams to work effectively together to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Learn more at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L. A-S-S-I-A-N dot com. Support for Pivot comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software, including Jira, Confluence, and Trello, help power the collaboration for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or 2 million, or whether your team is around the corner or on another continent altogether, Atlassian Software is built to help keep you all on the same page from start to finish. That way, every one of your teams, from engineering and IT to marketing, HR, and legal, can stay connected and moving together as one towards shared, company-wide goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Thank you. 
Okay, Bill, we're back. The antitrust train might be stopping in Cupertino next. Speaking of Apple, the DOJ is reportedly preparing an antitrust case against Apple. DOJ lawyers have been investigating the company since 2019 at issue whether Apple stifled competition in both hardware and software. Politico says the suit could come by the end of the year if the DOJ decides to proceed. It's obviously been proceeding on a Google case. Uh, Also, Apple should, uh, and FTC is sort of doing things. Apple would join Google and Facebook in the elite club of tech giants facing antitrust suits in the U.S. Obviously, very slow moving, tons of money these companies have to wait it out. Um, Can the DOJ take on Google, Meta, and Apple at once while it's dealing with the noise of Donald Trump, for example? Um, Probably a pretty easy case comparatively. Uh, How do you look at this and the impact on these companies? Well, I think we've had a sea change in uh, antitrust thinking in Washington in the Biden administration. Uh, Lena Khan at the uh, FTC has obviously been outspoken about taking a harder look uh, at individual companies and whether they're using, you know, acting too monopolistic. Uh, you know, we have the ongoing Justice Department lawsuit now uh, in Washington. John Cantor is there. John Cantor is there. Uh, I, I assume you're ta- talking about the Simon & Schuster uh, Penguin Random House deal, which yeah. is, you know, a mm-hmm. relatively small deal, uh, but it would make the big five publishing uh, houses the big four. You know, as an author myself, who is published by Penguin Random House, you know, uh, I'm not sure I buy the uh, government's argument here that, you know, the big name authors somehow, if the big five becomes the big four, won't get as big uh, advances as they had been getting. Uh, you know, superstars always get big advances and will continue, whether it's five or four. Uh, it's more sort of the middle list uh, people who might suffer if the big five becomes the big four. Uh, but this, I think, is you know, is a clear example of the you know the Biden administration getting tougher on what appears to be consolidating industries and, you know, oligopoly power in them. Uh, You know, Apple obviously has a huge amount of power, as any $2.5 trillion company would. Uh, The only one. The (laughs) only one. Uh, You know, I think it deserves its market value, given the incredible suite of products uh, it provides, and frankly, the amazing job that Tim Cook has done uh, in mm-hmm. you know after Steve Jobs' death, many people doubted that that could be possible. They but did. He, they he's did. Done an amazing job. Um, the opposite of GE, right? The opposite. The opposite. The, the, but you know, yeah, GE was well. once looking like Apple too. So you know, what goes around comes yeah. around. Uh, right. Yeah. And you know, I'm not sure. You know, if the Justice Department wants to take this on. Uh, But, you know, because they're so valuable, because they're so powerful, because they have such unbelievable EBITDA margins, these companies have made themselves targets. Right, right. And also, I think that it's interesting the story was coming out now. Um, You know, I'm interviewing Tim Cook in a couple of weeks. It's largely about Steve Jobs. The the Mm, interview was about his 10 years uh, at the helm uh, and the growth of it. Um, But I I feel like they're going to try to settle these things. Um, in some fashion, and I suspect the tech companies wouldn't don't particularly want to fight them for. Although the, it's a way to win by just keep it going. Yeah, I mean, I don't think uh, it's not. Nobody likes litigation, Kara. Uh, nobody wants to be involved in litigation. So, uh, especially corporate litigation. So, uh, I think yes. Uh, if I were Tim Cook uh, and this were looming, you know, again, we don't know whether it's looming. One political story does not make a lawsuit filed, uh, I would, uh, you know, assess, uh, talk to my lawyers, who of course will benefit immensely from all of this, uh, as they always do, uh, and uh, try to figure out a solution that, you know, will solve everyone's concerns, which isn't necessarily yep, yeah. an easy thing. As no, a, they have done that before. They this that's an Apple way. You know, they have done, they've given concessions before, which is interesting to see if Google will do the same. But if I were them, I would not. I would do try to make a settlement on all these different. They've things got the golden goose. Uh, golden goose. Yeah. Uh, this laying right, the right. golden eggs. I mean, uh, you know, better to just stick with that. 
Yep, I would agree. Um, another elite club in Silicon Valley, speaking of getting lawyered up, tech's top brass are getting subpoenaed by both parties in the Twitter versus Elon Musk fight. The legal drama has brought in a who's who of business and tech leaders. I'm excited. Jack Dorsey, Mark Andreessen, Larry Ellison, Ken Griffin, and more. It's not just individuals. Musk has been granted access to some of Twitter's data, and Twitter has requested information from Tesla. They also want his group chats, which I suspect are very spicy. Um, you know, these guys, they've been complaining. There's a story in the New York Times today and not too happy to be dragged into this. I, I tweeted about it because a lot of them this summer were when the Twitter deal was first going on, when it was an all, you know, Elon's going to own the world. They were like, oh, we called me. We talked about it. We're thrilled. Like I couldn't, I couldn't, everybody was like, I'm, you know, I'm advising him and this and that. Um, uh, what what could be they be looking for? Uh, lots of PayPal mafia names like Joe Lonsdale, David Sachs, a particularly noisy person. Um, uh, Peter Thiel is not in there. I don't think they're friends, so I suspect they weren't texting or anything like that. What do you make of this? Because it's Elon who's dragged them into this, and he's very chatty with everybody. Well, I think your point uh, is a very good one about you know how people wanted to be chummy with the uh, success uh, or the perceived success of this deal and Elon taking over Twitter. You know, there's an old saying on Wall Street, you know, success has many fathers and failures an orphan. So, you know, we saw, uh, you know, when it, uh, you know, in the weeks leading up to April 25th, when he signed the merger agreement, everyone wanted to be uh, Elon's chum. Every lawyer wanted to work for him. Every banker wanted to be on his side of the docket or on the other side, whatever it was. They all, this is the biggest deal of the year. This is so exciting. The fees are going to be enormous, you know. And then now, of course, you know, the lights are coming on. The cockroaches are running for the exits. Uh, so uh, they're getting what they, you know, that's the downside of the bargain. What's the reason for Twitter doing this? Um, it, it, just to irritate his friends, correct? To get, of course, and, and they might come up with something, hey, presumably. You never know what they're going to come up with. Uh, you know, uh, either what's in their uh, chat uh, boxes, what's in their email, what's in their, you know, what signal uh, conversations, whatever it is. You never know. Something, I'm sure something delicious will come out that journalists will gobble up. Uh, then when it comes to deposition time, uh, if we get that far, which I'm sure, you know, maybe we will, maybe we won't, uh, uh, then who knows what any of these guys could say. And that can be delicious. It's all great for journalists. And, you know, this is litigation, Kara, uh, and it's big time corporate litigation. We've got $44 billion at stake or the difference between 44 and 32 or whatever, uh, which is the market cap of of Twitter today. So that's $12 billion, uh, at stake. Uh, you know, this is this is a big deal. So when when you think about it, you you and I have written and talked a lot about this, and uh, we thought that you, the deal would, would get done and then not get done. Where do you see it right now? Obviously, you've written a lot that, that he's going to get his head handed to him and the Chancery Court. Actually, within that story, there was a lot of comments, which I hadn't realized the judge had said about essentially Elon not has to answer a question because this is a court of law. He's acting very Trump-like in terms of, you know, treating it like it's a PR thing versus a, a legal issue in terms of responding. Um, and she was, she seemed quite irritated with yes. the Musk side. I think this is another important crucible for accountability, Kara. Uh, you know, we've, seems to have seeded accountability in our politics, which continues to blow my mind. I just don't understand it. I, I, it baffles me. Uh, even, you know, ultimately Richard Nixon at least had some accountability. Uh, you know, can we get some accountability for Donald Trump, please? Someone mm -hmm. who's responsible <laughs> for holding these people accountable, please do it. Uh, and I think we're in a similar position with this uh, Elon Musk Twitter deal. Uh, you know, just because he's the world's richest guy, we have to genuflect in his direction and let him get away with not uh, performing on a contract that was heavily negotiated that he signed. I mean, if this goes away, you know, whether we like the guy or not, you know, he signed a merger agreement that was heavily negotiated. He's the one that started this thing. It's not like Twitter said, oh, I want to be sold. Who wants to buy me? He right, right. started this thing. Then he mm -hmm. changed his mind because he had a hissy fit, fine, but he still has to be held accountable for what he signed. And so 
I think he has to lose the court case because if he doesn't, then all other contracts are out the window and our society crumbles further apart. So, so what what happens then in October? Do you think he will press for a full trial or how do these things go very quickly in Chancery? Each side has hired every Silicon Valley and corporate lawyer around. And this has Twitter, been like the of course, lawyer. has hired Wachtell, perhaps the mm-hmm. finest law firm uh, in, mm-hmm. a, in the country. Uh, he he can't concede the point before he loses the ruling. So, um, you know, he can't. His alpha male uh, ego will not allow that to happen. So uh, he's going to have to uh, go through the court case. He's going to have to wait for the ruling. He's going to have to lose the ruling, which he will lose. And then uh, the real negotiation over what happens next will start, in my opinion. Because, again, he doesn't want to own this, and Twitter does not want him to own Twitter because he will destroy Twitter. So uh, now maybe that's a good thing. Maybe Twitter should be destroyed, and maybe they deserve each other. That's another conversation we can have. But uh, I don't see, you know, you know, he's not going to pay $44 billion. He's not going to follow through on even if he loses the judgment, uh, maybe they're gonna. Twitter's gonna want the difference between forty-four billion and the thirty-two billion where Twitter is trading now. That's twelve billion. That's a lot of money. I think they. I've been saying, writing for weeks, that they're gonna settle at five billion. It seems like a lot of money to Twitter. That's five years of EBITDA. They can maybe do a lot with that money instead of just uh, you know furthering it away, which they might be able to do too. And you know, five billion for Elon is obviously five times more than what he thought uh, he was going to have to pay to walk away from this thing. Uh, it's not, you know, it's pocket change for him, but it's still a lot of money. So that's why I got to yeah. the five billion. And then he still owns a big chunk. He's going to have to like, agree uh, to sell it. Presumably. Yeah, that has to be sold, and he'll probably, yeah, he'll probably make money on the sale of that because you know he's probably bought it at relatively low dollar values uh, beginning in January. Uh, yeah, he has, that'll have to be part of the agreement, that he divests himself of his 9%, and he stays away for a long time. Mm-hmm. And that's where you think it's going to end up? Yes, that's where I think it's going to end up. It will not and end up with, uh, Elon Musk will not own Twitter. And, and he will not be able to prove fraud here. He has to prove. Oh, God, no. Like, no, he's yeah. way out of his league there. And yeah, his lawyers yeah. know that. They just have to do you know what his uh, client wants. Right, right. So they'll just go ahead. What's the worst case scenario for this? It, w- that he just refuses to pay the money or? I mean, he can, again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not totally versed on what the remedies that ch- the Chancery Court has available to him. Uh, look, if he doesn't reach some settlement with Twitter, it's not like he doesn't have other companies that need mm-hmm. capital right? Mm -hmm. I believe Tesla is a company that needs capital. I believe SpaceX is a company that needs capital. I believe the Boring Company is a company that needs capital. If he pisses off everyone on Wall Street and everyone in the Chancery Court of Delaware, he then you can pretty much kiss Tesla goodbye, kiss SpaceX goodbye, kiss his fortune goodbye. So, other things depend on him reaching a mutually satisfactory solution here. Yeah, we'll see what happens. All right, let's bring in our friend of Pivot. Kevin Delaney is the co-founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of Charter, a media outlet and services company digging deep into the future of work. Good timing, Kevin. It's a world he knows well. Delaney previously co-founded the business news outlet Quartz. And also, he and I worked together at the Wall Street Journal. I think you were my—you came after me, correct? You took over. I did. You were an uh, important mentor to me when I arrived out in San Francisco that years ago. That is true. That is true. You did take over. I was so ready to go. And you were right. You did an excellent job. Um, I wouldn't uh, envy you uh, having to deal with me because I pissed off so many people. <laughs> anyway, um, welcome to Pivot, Kevin Delaney. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, I'm so thanks, excited. Sarah. Hey, Bill. So this is a big area that you're you're talking about. And there was, again, another story, a couple stories in the journal and the Times today about people returning to work, Labor Day, maybe they'll finally come after Labor Day. I've had lots of discussions with CEOs and they either have to be really tough or they 
don't know what to do. Mostly it's the second, like, oh God, I can't make anybody do anything. Um, so, so, But some of the hottest pandemic trends are winding down. Netflix and Peloton have had layoffs. Zoom's earnings and stock price are way down. The U.S. is shuttering its free COVID test program. And the next booster shot may be the last one the government pays for. So it feels we're coming out of the pandemic. Where do you, what, what do you think is going to happen right now? Because most people think that people are not going to go back to yeah. work. Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing, you're totally right. And we have a lot of companies that we've been talking to who are impatient to get their workers back in the office. And there are a lot of workers who we've seen in places like Apple who are like, no, we don't want to come back in. And so there, things are coming to a head uh, right now. I would say that companies have, have a lot of companies have really botched this. And I think that um, what they've done is they've had these periods of experimentation where they say, you can come in when you want, you can get more we'll, have bananas and bagels and things like that. Um, and what people have wound up doing, because it hasn't been structured particularly well, is that they've come in uh, to the office during these periods of experimentation, and they've been sitting uh, next to people who they don't particularly work with, and they're on Zoom calls all day. So uh, the failure of actually, uh, and actually, ultimately, I think why things are coming to a head now is they don't feel heard, and they feel like the only way that they can um, actually wind up in a situation that they're happy with is by really digging in and saying, we don't want to come into the office. We're um, and, and frankly, a lot of CEOs have actually not done a particularly good job of uh, hearing people. They're, you know, they're impatient to get people back into the office for reasons that seem to often come down to the fact that that's how they work. They feel more comfortable when they see people working. And the workers have some powerful arguments. You know, retention is higher when you allow people to work in a hybrid situation or remotely. Productivity, you know, Nick Bloom at Stanford has done a bunch of research on this. And productivity is probably up a little bit uh, for people who are working remotely. Business results are don't seem to have been impacted by this. So the CEOs in a lot of cases don't have a particularly good argument good, for insisting. That is, from, from my perspective, even many years ago when I was at the Washington Post, they'd always like, why aren't you in the office? I'm like, I'm out doing stories. And and they were they sort of were like, you need to be seen here. And I go, why? Why do you need to see me? If I turn in the stories, I do a great job. Would you fucking care if I'm at the movies. I'm at the movies, by the way. I, I was, yeah. It was a really interesting thing because they could never give me a good reason. Now, I do think there's good reasons to be at work at the same time where there's, you know, camaraderie, there's culture, et cetera, et cetera. But it has to be super intentional, meaning everybody comes in on Wednesday. Everybody comes in on Tuesday, whatever. The, now it's you go, I was at the Vox office and he, they've been particularly loose, actually. And nobody was there. Zero people, one person. One person yeah. was there. No, and the research, exactly to your point, uh, shows very clearly that hybrid arrangements are the best arrangements, where you agree that there's some number of days a week that everyone on a team comes into the office and they're together. Um, a lot of the, the failure, a lot of the crisis situation that we're in right now is that companies say, we need our employees back in the office for mentorship. And well, like, did you have a mentorship program before uh, the pandemic? Did you have one during the pandemic? Do you have one now? Um, and the truth is that a lot, of, a lot of people show up in the office and there is no structure for mentorship or these other things. There's this notion that's been written about a lot and researchers have really debunked of water cooler magic and the idea is that just by being physically present in the office, you bump into people at the water cooler and that's like the source of the world's great inventions and creativity. There's very little, uh, if any, research that actually supports that that unstructured interaction as being something that can actually be replicated in some cases even better uh, when done in a hybrid or, or remote situation. So Bill, why don't you jump in? Because Wall Street's been forcing people back into work, like you're coming in to our giant office buildings that we have. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, JP Morgan Chase, for instance, is building a brand new giant office building on Park Avenue and 48th Street. Uh, uh, that'll be a huge waste of money if people don't uh, come back in. I think, it, uh, uh, Kevin, I'd be interested in your thoughts about this, but it seems to me that it depends on the industry, like Wall Street uh, is very much an apprenticeship uh, business. I spent 17 years as an M&A banker on, on Wall Street, and, you know, uh, you know, there may not be any research about water cooler magic, uh, you know, in the academy, but uh, in real life, uh, IRL, 
uh, there uh, is a lot of water cooler magic. You cannot suck up on Zoom, I'm sorry to say, and sucking up uh, is a big part of getting ahead on Wall Street, just sort of hanging around the hoop. And not only do you learn how to do things because it's an apprenticeship business, but you know, you also can get into your boss's good graces or not, uh, and you can advance your career by just hanging out and being, you know, a decent uh, uh, team player uh, and clever socially, uh, and you just can't do that on on Zoom. So my, my thinking is that, you know, there are uh, people on Wall Street, and, and by Wall Street, I also mean like private equity, hedge funds, et cetera, uh, who care about their jobs, who care about getting ahead, and those people are going to want to be back in the office. There are those people on Wall Street who really don't care about their jobs. They're kind of like passing through you know, collecting some money, paying off student debt, whatever it is, uh, don't really care. And they don't want to go uh, into the office because they don't really care about their careers. So it, de I think it depends on how serious you are about wanting to have a career. Yes, I would say a few things. So first of all, the um, it depends not just on the industry, but actually on the role. So you have companies, you think of food services as being a company where people need to be in person to serve you whatever your salad. Um, but they actually have a lot of corporate employees too. So that is one distinction. Nick Bloom at Stanford, again, did some research to unpack it by industry in tech and finance were actually the two industries that were most remote or remote uh, compatible, uh, interestingly. Um, I would say that in terms of this idea of sucking up to bosses and having presence with them uh, for, uh, for promotion, there is actually research out of Harvard that shows that that specific thing can actually be done asynchronously. They paired up people with mentors in the higher ranks of the organization, and it actually produced, it allowed them to advance more quickly over time in organization. So that is something that you could actually think about uh, doing. The other thing I would say is that there is a danger of all of this. We know that um, we know that the people who are most who most need and most want flexibility are. Caregivers, women, people of color. The research is very clear on this. And if this culture of Wall Street, we know is actually not particularly good for diversity, not particularly friendly to caregivers, women, and people of color over the years, and however much better it is today. And I think like the danger of what you're saying, Bill, is that um, you know, if you're gonna you're gonna select to not have caregivers, women, and people of color. Uh, because they can find other, you know, if you're running a, a Wall Street firm that insists that everyone come in, because those are the people who are going to choose other uh, other roles at other companies where they actually do have the flexibility. One last mini point, which is that people, the whole focus is on location, where you're doing work. But what the research shows is that what people really want even more than that is flexibility of time. And when they work, uh, Future Forum, which is a Slack think tank, you know, surveyed recently, and 94% of of knowledge workers want flexibility around when they work, 80% um, want flexibility where they work. So if they want to not work in the morning or whatever, one of the things, where do you imagine this zeroing out? Because it still feels like it's bumping along on this hybrid idea that seems unspecific. Um, managing remotely seems like it's going to go on forever now. It seems like it's the thing I now. think so. Yeah. I mean, I think there there are a few different scenarios. What I would what I would say, like from studying the research very closely, that a hybrid arrangement where people are in the office two or three days a week, and it's structured, and they actually have one on one meetings with their manager in person, and they you know the the uh, the type of work that should be done in person is done in person. There's uh, a lot of a culture more of asynchronous work and management. We know there are too many meetings, and information can be better uh, shared, et cetera is, you know, that is the ideal scenario that companies get on top of this, that they do actually uh, listen to their employees. They look around, what are employees doing when they actually come into the office and, and getting uh, on top of that? There is a scenario where in a year or two years, we're just back where we were pre-pandemic. We saw this um, IBM and Best Buy are two companies that actually had very progressive, advanced hybrid work arrangements, you know, years uh, years ago, and they ultimately abandoned them when the top leadership of those companies changed, or there's a, a kind of in other pressures on them because they they weren't committed to the structure around them, and they actually didn't work. So I think yeah. there is a scenario in a lot of companies that a year from now they're like, yeah, we tried hybrid, it was a disaster, people people quit, and we're just going to go back to nine to five in your 
in your desk. Yeah, every except day. this was the biggest experiment in history on that, isn't it? This was the biggest experiment of doing it. And I think a lot of people do, especially with children, um, you know, it creates the idea of commuting is now again, this I'm speaking as someone who never goes in the office for 25 years. <laughs> yeah, and I don't forget, uh, you know, a lot of companies made record amount of money That's with, right, the, with so their works. employees working from home. I mean, Wall Street yeah. made records, pay. profits in 2021, and everyone was at home. So where's the argument for coming into the office? It's certainly not a, necessarily an economic one. It's a social one. It's a learning one. It may be a mentoring one, although I, I agree with you, Kevin, I don't believe there's much mentoring going on on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. A couple last questions, and then, then um, Bill might have one more. Is where do where do you imagine if you're going to be uh, running this remote workforce? Is it possible to do it well? What are the like three things to two things to do, and the two things not to do? Yeah, it's definitely is possible to do it well, and I think um, there are a few key things. Uh, really, if it's possible for the type of work that you're doing, you should aim to have a hybrid work situation where you have people coming to the office two or three days a week. It's most important that people are in the office at the same time as their manager and their team members and have the same day. So that's the first thing. The second thing is look around. What are people doing when they come into the office? Are they coming in and actually just on Zoom calls with their people, with their colleagues who are remote? I think it's really important to think about how people spend their time and coach them in using that time for things that actually benefit from being in person. That's the stuff uh, that we've talked about. I think a big mistake that CEOs are not are making today is they're not actually listening to their staff. They have this reflexive, I need to, I need people in their desks. Otherwise, the culture is going to fall apart. We're going to be less creative. Our business results are going to suffer over time. And it's Bill, you just said, like, that's a very, that's not an argument that's actually resonating with workers because, um, because the business results have been as good as they've ever been in a lot of cases. And actually on the, on retention, what Nick Bloom has found is that quit rates are actually down by a third in companies uh, with which allow their workers to work from home. So it's actually better for retention, contrary to what uh, people say. The last thing I would say is that we've never we've done a poor job in this country of focusing on team leaders, middle managers, and you know, consulting strategic consulting companies have made a lot of money over the years cutting out this frozen middle and and firing middle managers. But what's clear is that the success of individuals and teams and ultimately companies is based on actually having managers who are skilled at coaching, leading uh, their their employees of these companies. And that's that's true more than ever, but it actually was true to an extent that people didn't acknowledge. Our former colleague, Kara Sam Walker, uh, has done a lot of research on sports teams. And the team captain in his analysis is really critical for success. It's this person on the field who's giving feedback in the moment, who is uh, who is leading the team, not necessarily like the most popular person or the star of the team, but the person who is who is kind of in the action beside beside the player. So I would say that like thinking about training, investing in, um, and really valuing uh, middle management is important as well. Middle management. You know, one of the things, one of the tricks I had with Recode, which is also they could come in or not, I didn't care, was I worked in the office quite a bit I, when I wanted to, and I refused to talk on the phone. I hate the phone. And so I was like, no, I'm, we didn't have as many Zooms and stuff. I was like, if you want to see me, I'm in the office. And that's, if you don't want to, that's okay too, like whatever you want. And so people tended to coalesce in the office sometimes and then yeah. pick and choose and make appointments. It was it worked out rather well. Uh, last question, Bill? I'm just curious, uh, Kevin, what role do you think the unemployment rate uh, plays in this debate? Obviously, unemployment uh, is uh, very low right now, historical lows, but uh, these things are cyclical. Uh, if we're heading into a recession, uh, as the Fed seems to want to think us uh, that we are, then unemployment is going to increase. And, you know, people's cockiness about their jobs or ability to find other jobs if they quiet quit or just leave uh, uh, in general uh, will change dramatically. And therefore, you tend to do what your boss wants you to do if you lose leverage. So just curious what you think about that. Yeah, I think it's definitely a factor. I would say, like, the answer to that, honestly, is not really known yet. Um, and as that would increase the employer's power and CEOs could just insist that people come into the office 
because they want them to and they don't care if people have good arguments for why they should work remotely. But I think that that's a very short-sighted position. You know, your workers are not going to thrive. You know, there's a lot of research around how people who don't believe in the purpose of their company are actually less productive. Um, we know that um, there's this, you know, this thing people are talking about, whether it's real or not, quiet quitting, the idea of like sort of passively, aggressively not doing your job. So it might well, be that that's people... nothing new. That's yeah, nothing that's new. nothing new. <laughs> I think you should write a management book. You Karen. know what my management book works, would be called? Works. If it works, works. Here's my management book, Staff Zero. That's how I want to get. Like, no. After managing, I'm like, no, never again. Okay. I don't care well, I'd about read that book. problems. I don't want to listen to anybody, and I don't want to say you suck or you're it's, a, I, it's just no. Staff it's a Zero. Short, it's a short book, Staff Zero. Staff Zero. That's what I'm trying to get to. <laughs> anyway, uh, you can sign up for uh, Charter's free newsletter at charterworks.com. Kevin, it's good to see you. Thank you so much, Karen Bill. Thank you, Kevin. All right, Bill, one more quick break. We'll be back for predictions. Okay, Bill, let's hear a prediction. Does it have the word affidavit in it? Please, please, no. <laughs> uh, my prediction is that uh, Sheryl Sandberg, oh. uh, newly married. Yeah. Newly remarried. Uh, newly uh, divorced from Meta slash Facebook. Yeah will uh -huh. join the Disney board. Whoa. She was on it. She was on the Disney board previously. Well, I think she might be going back. She's Why? got free time. Yeah. Uh, my gut tells me that oh. uh, it's the perfect match between her free time and Disney's need uh, uh, to satisfy Dan Loeb, uh, who is pushed for a board shakeup. I think Sheryl Sandberg would be an excellent addition you know, for Dave Dan Loeb would want somebody like. Explain Cheryl. who Dan Loeb is for the for for those. I, Dan Loeb likes to likes a, likes a lady, like put, putting a famous lady on boards of things. He was he he was the one behind Yahoo. I've known him for a long Marissa time. Marissa Mayer, he put yes, Marissa, Marissa Mayer in the CEO's job. Uh, that was a very cynical move by Dan Loeb, but go ahead. Uh, but he made a billion dollars from yes, Yahoo he did. without yes, really he did. altering what the company's uh, was doing. Uh, Look, uh, he's uh, a hedge fund manager, a very successful hedge fund manager. You just from wrote about him, mm -hmm. L.A. Um, you know, I've I wrote a Vanity Fair story about him in 2013. Uh, uh, you know, I've been writing about him for years. He's, you know, very quirky, very successful, um, very opportunistic. You know, he doesn't take these big macro bets and just sit on them forever like Bill Ackman and hope for the best. You know, he made money a couple years ago uh, on Disney during the pandemic. Um, and then he saw uh, when Disney's stock took a dip uh, a month or so ago, he bought in again. Uh, and now he's come up with a list of demands that he wants Bob Chapek to listen to him about. And uh, my sense is that he and Bob talk and that Bob is uh, willing to listen. Willing to listen to him. And why is Bob willing to listen to him? Uh, because he's smart. That's what you do with hedge fund guys who are activist hedge fund guys. You listen to them. You don't necessarily do what they ask, but you listen and you act like you're uh, thinking about doing what he wants, which is for them to buy the one the 33% of Hulu that they don't own, uh, maybe think about spinning off ESPN, which of course has been talked about for a while, loading it up with debt. He seems very focused on reducing Disney's, you know, fifty billion dollars of debt, which is, you know, a lot of debt. But they also have a lot of they have a lot of cash flow. Uh, you know, the fifty billion that Warner Brothers Discovery has is more material uh, to Warner Brothers Discovery and is a more of a danger than the fifty billion of debt is to Disney. But it's still a lot of debt. Um, they may have overpaid dramatically for the Fox deal, uh, seventy-one billion. Uh, so, you know, uh, Bob has a lot on his plate. Uh, things are looking better. Uh, you know, the parks are doing much better. Uh, but, you know, Disney Plus, while, uh, and the whole Disney streaming universe has a lot of subscribers, uh, but it's still, Disney Plus is still losing money. Um, yeah, so you have to listen to Dan Loeb. All right. So putting Cheryl on is, is possibly problematic, too, because she's got controversy with her. Correct? Or does she get a new um, life now? 
yeah, she's got a new husband. Uh, she's moving beyond Meta. Yeah, she's got a new life. She's probably, you know, third third life uh, for 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 our friend Cheryl. I mean, she's so uh, smart and uh, can be so charming. Um, and so, you know, uh, I just think she'd be the kind of person Dan Loeb would potentially uh, want to have Bob put on Disney board, along with another guy. Who? Who else? I don't. I don't know who that would be. Maybe. Right. Maybe Evan Spiegel or somebody. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Someone fresh, because they had Jack Dorsey on there, if you remember, under Bob Iger. Um, but the, I would, I would. It's really interesting that Dan is moving now. He didn't move during the Iger era, uh, which is interesting to me. Well, he did uh, buy in during the pandemic when it looked like right. Disney was shutting down, and he, his bet was that the pandemic would. And, and, you know, he made a lot of money. Uh, and I think, you know, he obviously, he's from L.A. Uh, I, you know, we were talking about does the fact that he was from L.A. influence his desire to own Disney. Um, and, um, you know, he, he, he said he wondered about that and decided that he was much more, you know, analytical than that. And just because he's an L.A. boy and he likes to surf doesn't mean he has to own Disney. It's a yeah. smart bet. It's a, it's smart, a smart bet. bet. It's a great yes. company. He'll make money. It's a great company. So yeah. Chapek's doing okay now. Bob, too. I, you know, he got a new three-year contract. He seems yep. like he's, Which you know. Which thought, you and I thought he would get. Yeah, yeah we thought he would yeah. get. They're not going to change horses. I mean, I don't know that the Iger, Kevin Mayer faction of the Disney world is in, you know, in cha- talk about CEO, the importance of CEOs. I mean, what was Bob Iger's main job here is to choose a successor, and now he's kind of disappointed. It's like uh, it's like Jack Welch with Jeff Immelt. Uh, you know, one of the things that Jack told me uh, that I explore in the book is that he believes absolutely he made a mistake in choosing Jeff Immelt to be his successor. And so these decisions are hugely important. And, you know, once you make them, and if you choose wrong, hey, Bob Iger, there goes your legacy. legacy. So, uh, you know, I'm interviewing him in a, in a week or so. What should I ask him? Did you make a mistake, Bob? Did I make a mistake? And and uh, aren't you supposed to be buying like a basketball team or something too? Uh-uh. Pro- uh-uh. I'm feeling like he'll say some things because he's like, you know. I think he the, will too. Uh, uh, his career I, post, I'm very interested in his career post Disney. It'll be interesting. Well, he's, he's so dead. fit and healthy uh, yeah. looking. Uh, you know, he seems he like he's 40 when he's 70. So, I mean, I'm sure he's going to do more things. Uh, didn't he want to be president or think about running for president? Not, no, I, I think he's not going to do that. No, I know he's not. But he's, he's a handsome man for it. sure. Yeah. He's hand- It'll be interesting to see what he does because he sort of had a great run there, um, and nobody Absolutely. expected as much that from him when he initially got it, which was interesting. He's only the one that stuck around and took the abuse of. Uh, his predecessor, and then managed to really outstrip him quite a bit. Anyway, we'll see where that goes. We'll see. But but Cheryl Sam, that's a really good prediction. I really like that prediction. That's really, I hadn't even thought about that because she had been on it along with Jack Dorsey and then not. But yeah, she needs a, a new act too. She needs a, you know, I've asked her for an interview. We'll see. I said, you got to come through me to, for your return, your return, you know, the and return. And smart, she will. She might not. But I said, you know, if you come through me and you do okay, it's good for you. Then the world will beat a path to your door. That is correct. Uh, you need to have one, someone beat you up for a little while, and then you can you can emerge unscathed. Anyway, uh, that is a fantastic prediction, Bill. I really thought that was, I hadn't even thought about that. We want to hear from you, by the way. Send us your questions about business sector or whatever's on your mind. Go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit a question for the show or call 855-51-PIVOT or tell us what you think of our predictions. Okay, Bill, that's the show. We'll be back on Friday for more. I'm going to read us out. Today's show was produced by Lara Naiman, Evan Engel, and Taylor Griffin. Ernie Enderdot engineered this episode. Thanks also to Drew Burrows and Mia Silverio. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Vox Media. We'll be back later this week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. Scott Free August is almost at an end. I know you're all depressed, but Bill... Thank you so much. Kara, this was a pleasure. Really enjoyed it immensely. Thank you for having me. Support for the show comes from Atlassian. What do you think of when you hear the word flow? How about a smooth river of collaboration culminating in a shared ocean of positive outcomes across your organization? 
Atlassian software like Loom, Confluence, and Jira can help you achieve maximum flow across your teams by enabling fast and easy communication and connection no matter what time zone they're in. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. Learn how to unlock flow across your teams at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. 